1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Sarah Atkinson and Helen W. Kennedy about secret cinema and the immersive experience industry. Uh, So welcome to the podcast, both.
1: Hello, thank you
0: for inviting us. Hi,
2: Dave. I'm delighted to be talking to you about this book, partially um, because Secret Cinema is a kind of fascinating phenomenon, fascinating um, organisation, but also because the book um, really gets the grips with what's going on right now with this idea of kind of immersive experiences, the way, you know, sort of not just uh, theatre and film, um, live music, but a whole range of different um, trends are going on um, with, with with media and performance, and I suppose the uh, the place to start probably and maybe we'll start with uh, with you, Helen. Is why did you write a book about secret cinema? <laughs> um, you know what? Why was this um, what would I call it kind of organisation interesting to you?
0: Um, yeah, great place to start. So um, I guess Sarah and I had as secret cinema first came to our kind of attention in um, the period between 2012 and 2013. And I guess the moment of their their real importance for us as a research object was when suddenly they were doing um, Back to the Future, a really, um, kind of popular text. Suddenly, there was this organization doing something that seemed to really capture the, the um, a large audience, and uh, be have shifted from what was a very what we understood as a very underground organization um, showing films to very small audiences in underground spaces and different kinds of spaces, to suddenly doing something a bit more mainstream like Back to the Future. That was the point at which it suddenly. Became a you know a big object of study for us, and we've been studying it ever since. And um, I suppose along that very long period of nearly seven years, we've gathered an awful lot of material on this um, organisation and have seen them become the kind of. The the object through which to understand a kind of changing um, set of um, practices and interests and um, and audience engagements around immersive experiences. So they have been a leader in that space over the past kind of ten years, and that makes them a really interesting object of study to understand. To understand through that single organization in a way the the processes of industrialization of the the becoming of an immersive experience economy or immersive experience industry so they become a kind of really important lens through which to understand a whole set of processes both industrial practices and then also kind of audience engagements and audiences tastes and behaviors
2: you, you mentioned uh, this kind of sense of experience economy and uh, immersive um, industries um, and, and obviously immersive experience industry is, is part of the book's title. And I'm wondering, uh, just mo- moving uh, to you, Sarah, if you, you could kind of um, give a bit more detail about what Helen was saying, there. like what actually is this industry, this part of um, the economy that's uh, emerged over those uh, years you've been looking at secret cinema?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting question. And, and to kind of add to why, you know, they're an organisation of such intrigue and interest to study is by very way of their secrecy and their whole kind of um, selling point was that the locations were secret, the titles of the films were secret, who was going was kept secret. So it became something that was very hidden from view and how you kind of capture that as a, as a researcher to make that um, more visible um, because it's something that was becoming lost because the the events would happen and then they would kind of dissipate. There'd be no record of them happening because people couldn't take cameras or ways to capture them. So this kind of phenomena that we saw emerging as it was being hugely significant was uh, at risk of becoming lost. So that was another drive behind the book. But absolutely, to capture what this sector is um, and what these experiences do for those who haven't heard of secret cinema before, what they do is they create these big environments that are inspired by a film and latterly by a television program where audiences go in character, they're given a character when they buy a ticket, they're given costume instructions to wear, instructions on what to bring, what to do, um, how to behave and they arrive in a huge location which has been dressed essentially as as a huge film set through which they interact with one another, with live performances, with scenes from the films, they can eat food and drink that's been inspired. By the film's narrative, um, and, and yeah, essentially lose themselves in the space. That's the idea. Give up their mobile phone on arrival and then engage in an experience that can last sometimes in excess of, of five hours. And with the secret cinema events, the format had always been um, prior to the Back to the Future event that the people going wouldn't know what the film would be. So they would get instructions, but they'd have no idea of the film that would be shown. And, and one of the main kind of examples that's very often cited is the Shawshank Redemption. So people were advised to turn up at a school in Bethnal Green and actually they then found themselves being tried in a court they were incarcerated into a prison, they were treated as prisoners, thrown into kind of prison scrubs, um, marched around by prison guards, thrown into cells etc and then they saw the Shawshank Redemption as the kind of the, um, the pinnacle of that experience. So that was the model that they worked from. But as we said, as Helen said, in the Back to the Future instance, that was when the film's title was actually released as part of the marketing campaign. So people knew that they were going to see Back to the Future and knew, you know, had expectations then of what they would experience. So it's really grown from that really, and all those immersive practices around engaging people in an environment through the food, through the sound, through performers has really kind of grown and filtered into lots of different spaces now. And I think it it's kind of reached its height when um, uh, an episode of The Apprentice very recently um, included uh, an immersive experience design task. So that I think really signaled its you know, full blown move into the mainstream
2: yeah I mean it's fascinating and again you, you've both sort of alluded to this to study this company that in some ways have defined what uh, you know an immersive experience is you know it's not a performance it's not just going to the cinema um, it's participatory but it's sort of not at the same time and tracking that history you know it, it sort of tells us quite a lot about where we are now in terms of uh, live events industry and through that one of the things the book does is is sort of tell the story of of the evolution of secret cinema. And and Sarah, you'd mentioned back to the future as, you know, the kind of um, almost the sort of pivotal moment um, for the company and and its experiences. But I wonder, Helen, if if you could sketch out a bit about the kind of early years, um, maybe through the kind of um, tensions that were going on in the early years, before we come on to think about what's been possibly kind of lost In terms of their evolution,
0: Um, and what do you mean around the tensions? What what are you thinking about there? You think? Sorry, go on.
2: Well, one of the things the um, early couple of chapters uh, does is is kind of say, you know, on the one hand, you've got things that are like, um, you know, sort of great uh, participatory experiences, but also this is a commercial company. On the one hand, you know, you've got uh, a sense of, of the sort of um momentary or, or genuinely kind of unique experiences but at the same time those things having to be kind of replicated standardized you know um sort of um almost kind of you know packaged and, and i guess the story is um of almost a kind of an insurgent um organization that ends up um being something that can be, you know, sort of almost kind of franchised and, and
1: sold.
0: Yeah, so that is a really interesting part of the history that I think we've captured along the way is that process of um sort of being this underground secret organization that maybe also saw itself as as somehow quite countercultural um, and edgy in some way in terms of its position in relation to um, sort of the activist issues. So um, some of the 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 early campaigns also included some kind of countercultural narratives and then obviously along the way that increasing numbers of participants the desire for um greater profitability the use of larger scale spaces and then again with the the moment of back to the future the kind of the massification and the drawing on more mainstream texts more um widely recognized texts and those play out in the story of secret cinema uh, I guess, as a set of tensions between, on the one hand, wanting to align themselves with rebel narratives, and on the other hand, also wanting to um, kind of turn a profit. And the organization, yeah, it has grown around that set of tensions and obviously built a, um, a very loyal following around some of those rebellious narratives that also then become these larger scale fan communities that start to leap out into the wider world and drive a bit more of the wider, immersive experience economy. So I think Secret Cinema is a really interesting organisation to see um, up close and captured um, through our research that, that specific process of going from being something quite underground, communicated only through word of mouth, to now being something that you might see on a motorway billboard and around posters on the underground, which is quite a transformation.
2: Just thinking about the the early days, Sarah, what what kind of um, source material was Secret Cinema using when they first kind of got going before that pivotal moment with Back to the Future?
1: Yeah, I mean, a really kind of interesting mix, actually, of um, some new release material, as well as old cult-type films that would have kind of a you know a following of, of fans through through its cult status. Their first kind of major screening where they launched them, themselves a secret cinema was Paranoid Park by Gus Van Sant, and that was actually part of the promotion for that film. It was a new release film, so audiences wouldn't have, have known about that, and they set that up in some disused railway tunnels where if you know the film it's based around a skateboarding narrative so they've got skate ramps there and skaters and and bonfires and the whole narrative is set around a kind of a train station so so they kind of emulated that so that was a um, a kind of a pre-release promotion that they'd agreed they'd also done one for prometheus um, later on which was again a film unknown to the audience but was used to as part of the marketing campaign for that film so they were really kind of already in early stages engaging with with studios and distributors to use their model as a distribution kind of promotion mechanism Um, but they've interestingly they did films they kind of did outside films including Greece which um, the keen-eyed might already know that they're now um, doing a version of Greece in Birmingham um, coming up in the summer um, so again that was a kind of a very festivalized um, narrative that was an out in an outdoor location and again drew in you know lots of crowds around their fan community which at the time were from London and perhaps East London where there were trends around the resurgence of 50s fashion and clothing so those types of narratives that fitted within that area really attracted their main audiences which were the kind of the hipster uh, hox heights of that area that would be dressing in those types of clothes anyway and enjoying those spaces. So yeah, a real kind of, of mix of the two, but I think those that played to their fan communities at the time who, you know, they were their marketing material in a sense because they were the ones on Facebook and on social media kind of spreading the word about, about the events.
2: I mean, it, it's interesting you mentioned uh, Prometheus and that's a bit of a clue actually of, of, of where secret cinema and ended up i guess because you know you mentioned this is a sort of tie in you know it's part of of marketing this this movie and and i guess as a sort of uh, distinctiveness as compared with with some of the other kind of early years things that they were doing and you've mentioned uh, sarah a couple of times but back to the future and i'm interested in why is this so important what kind of do they do differently? Uh, why does it represent this kind of um, break for Secret Cinema?
1: Yeah, um, interestingly, there was a quite a financial aspect to this because this was the first production they did after receiving their first round of venture capital funding. So they had quite a, a bigger budget um, for this in ways that they hadn't done before. And the Back to the Future film also was, the screening was in 2015, so it coincided with the 30 year anniversary. So um, Um, there would have been a link with the studio there around the promotion of that fact, um, that it was um, 30 years since the film's original release. And it was a major um, location in terms of size and scale. It was um, in part of the Olympic Park. Um, And so the audience size that they could accommodate there was was really huge. Um, And they actually, when they first released the tickets um, for sale, the whole kind of system crashed. I think one of the, they were using a third party ticket and, uh, couldn't cope with the amount of people who arrived to um, purchase a ticket at that point and it was sold out after they'd fixed that issue within within hours, I think. Um, and so it had huge demands uh, put upon it from a a huge fan community who had never been to a secret cinema event before. These were Back to the Future fans um, who wanted to come for an experience related to that film. Whilst obviously the secret cinema audiences were still also coming. So yeah, I think it was that um, confluence of, of size, scale, um, and mainstream appeal that really was a turning point. And then the the new professionals that they had to engage in the making of that production, who they hadn't worked with before. Um, it started to really grow the scale of these events yeah th- there's lots of things we could talk about around what happened as a result of of that, that that's in the book um but um yeah i can talk more if you like or, or move on to something else
0: yeah i think also there sarah the the fact that audiences were coming from far outside London as well played in didn't it that sense that actually they were drawing in a national audience for the first time because of touching that reaching that back to the future audience which obviously reached far beyond their their kind of more underground London centric audience and that yeah that wrought a number of really interesting set of challenges for the organisation. I mean it was the media
1: attention as well that grew around because of its size and scale, but because of then quite a high profile situation where they had to cancel the event, which drew even more kind of press attention um, to it. So it became really, yeah, people started to know who Secret Cinema were through this
0: event who'd never heard of them before. Yeah, it was a mainstream news story, wasn't it? The um, postponement of the opening.
1: It was the headlines on the BBC, it was the
0: top story
1: um, on that day. Yeah, it was in that itself uh, kind of, you created lots of criticism around that for being such, why are people interested in this? There's far more, you know, world news events that should take precedence. But yeah, they were the the number one story that day.
2: I mean, I'm interested in, in, in probably two things and maybe we'll do them slightly separately. One thing, Sarah, you mentioned was kind of production and, and how the nature of production changed. But both of you have mentioned... Um, fans and the changing audience. And and maybe Helen, it'd be kind of good to hear about what the role of the audience is. You know, you've both kind of alluded to the idea of, you know, secret cinema begins with a kind of like quite underground, secret sort of culty, you know, geographically bounded audience. And by the time we get to, you know, nearing um, the present day, you know, towards, I guess, the end of the story, um, that the book is is telling you've got you know quite a very uh, different set of, of relationships between I guess kind of casual uh, fans who are interested in you know oh, I really like Blade Runner or I want to see Back to the Future or you know I love James Bond or, or, or whatever and there's a, there's a Star Wars one in, in there as well um, through to much more kind of uh what do you call them in the book kind of you know super fans and. Um, people who you know kind of construct a sense of identity um, with and, and through secret cinema. So what, what's the audience story for secret cinema?
0: Yeah, so Sarah said something about it um, earlier that was really important, which is that fact of the audience kind of dressed that set that she described. So by arriving in their costumes, the audience... Provide a kind of an awful lot of scene dressing, and you know populate those spaces in a way that becomes um, important for how that experience is is um, experienced for others. You know they, they become an important part of the experience just through arriving in costume. And then there's also for the audience there's a lot of little mini games that are part of the um, secret cinema experience. So very quickly on, um, you'll you'll have the opportunity to just arrive and be dressed up and tour around the space like a flaneur or in the parlance of the immersive economy just wade through that experience enjoying it or you can get involved and start talking to some of the actors and engage in mini games small challenges you might be asked to pursue um, and find information and communicate information to other characters within the, the space so there's a lot around the experience itself that has different degrees of of kind of interaction and participation in the immersive experience world. They describe those as waders, swimmers, or divers with different degrees of kind of involvement that you have to make possible in your experience in order to engage those different kind of audience desires, if you like. So the audience play an important role in making the experience for themselves and for each other. So that's a really key thing about the secret cinema experience, it's playful, it's interactive, it's participatory It's also provides an awful lot of spectacle for people, so it has a lot of range of experience um, kind of in the design and then those audiences those early audiences who were you know, being generated through word of mouth, who maybe all shared a particular kind of background well that has obviously expanded through their engagement with these different kinds of of um intellectual properties, including as you've mentioned, the things that come with enormous fan bases. Whether it's the James Bond franchise, the Star Wars franchise, things like Back to the Future, um, um kind of cult films such as Grease or Dirty Dancing, they all come with audience expectations. Audience um kind of expertises as well and along the way an organisation has formed that's called the Positive People of Secret Cinema who were formed around about the time of the first um, Romeo and Juliet um, outdoor um, secret cinema event and they started out as a Facebook community that were celebrating the, the the experience of secret cinema, often in opposition to the odd monas that would they they were experiencing another um, online social media community communities, hence the the foreground of that term positive, so the the community even has a set of of rules of engagement where it is about being positive about the organization about the producers the actors the the people that are designing the experience across the whole gamut of that um, of that the, that kind of production role and they've grown from you know relatively small community back in the early days to being over 3,000 members who a lot of whom um, not only go to secret cinema together but also go to other emerging Events together, and that fan community is obviously yeah really important part of the marketing cycle now of these experiences because they're really sharing um, every every bit of um, delight and engagement with the secret cinema. Um, way of doing promotion, which is very particular, which you know tries to use um, the very best of that kind of secrecy and guessing and mystery in order to tease an audience into an engagement in um, speculating about where the tech, where the, the the experience will be, what the experience will involve, what texts will be involved, etc. They did that very recently um, in a you know very very typical way around the most recent offering that that sarah mentioned that's going to be in birmingham which is greece and so there's a lot of speculation that engages that audience so a lot of chatter amongst that community and now positive people of secret cinema you know they they do a lot of, of work for the wider immersive um, economy because they they're sharing with each other um, insights into other experiences that exist not just in, in London but also um, nationally. So they're a really extraordinary community out of which has grown certain kinds of practices, behaviours, understandings, um, and also a level of kind of effective engagement with the secret cinema organization and their their particular kind of offer that's yeah really really strong and really really vibrant and continues beyond um what we've captured in the book so yeah it's a really interesting um fan community that brings together those early adopters all the way through to these kind of super fans in uh, um kind of social media spaces so yeah it's an interesting community
2: and I guess it carries with it all of the ambivalences, um, and I suppose kind of fascinating questions about who is doing work, who is a performer, what are the kind of um, you know limits and, and boundaries um, in these spaces.
0: Oh, absolutely, yeah, and I think th- that's a really interesting thing about the secret cinema um, uh, player community or engaging the, the the participant community is that they are very much um part of the labor of you know they are they are part of the labor economy they are doing the work of the of the organization and not just the the pre-event promotion. So there's an awful lot of um, kind of publicizing of um, their preparations for going. So as they assemble their costumes, there's a lot of um, social, muni- um, social media kind of community um, distribution of images, of ideas, that all happens before, that, that's, that's, that's happening alongside some of that spec, you know, post the speculation. Then it becomes all about being, um, uh, preparations um, costume gathering exchange of, of photographs and then all the way through to you know the photographs up to the event and then as Sarah said because there can't be photographs you can't take your camera into the event secret cinema usually have a space outside the event which is thematized that the dressed up um, elaboratively elaborately costumed um audience members can go and stand in that area take a final photograph before they go into the event and then um the event unfurls and then they come out and they usually do a kind of post post event disheveled photograph and then start to distribute distribute those um, via social media which do an awful lot more of um, kind of marketing and publicity and promotions for the event through signaling their excitement of and their you know pleasure in what they've undertaken what the experience has offered whilst absolutely always preserving the secrecy around the detail of the experience itself so they'll say that it was rich it was you know I was my mind was blown it was there was so much to do so much interaction but they'll never give you the detail of that so they'll always hold on to and be loyal to that notion of secrecy um, in that sort of post experience moment so it's a kind of cycle of um audience labor in terms of promotion the spectacle and engagement that they offer during the event itself and then the, the post event promotions to kind of feed into a more general wider um, audience interest in participating
2: And at the same time as this transformation of the audience, there's been a massive transformation of the organization. And Sarah, you know, you do this um, in, in the kind of the middle of the book where you map out um, the relationships of production, kind of staff uh, skills, um, I guess the kind of industrial organization um, as Secret Cinema has, has evolved to what it is today. So what, what's gone on in terms of how the company has, has changed and why it's Um, kind of production systems, production relations like now.
1: Yeah, interesting question. And again, this was fascinating to map throughout the history and how that evolved as the company grew. And all along, I have to say, um, Secret Cinema have engaged with really creative, experimental, exciting people who have kind of been there to, to problem solve and to work out ways of doing things and engage in audiences in, you know, new and exciting ways and to overcome challenges that hadn't been faced before because you're working in these physical live environments with performance with effects, with all sorts of things going on. So so in the early days that we've touched upon where you had those um, sort of cult productions like um, Ghostbusters and Blade Runner and and Alien, there was also a production of Brazil. What you'd have alongside that, once the audience members had bought the tickets were these wonderfully created um, fictional websites that were a way to draw the audiences in to sign up for their costumes, but also to start to engage with the narrative. So again, these were productions that the audiences might not know what they were, but they were drawn into some sort of side narrative. So you have these great website designers who are creating these stories and these worlds for, to engage the audiences before they arrived and obviously to promote it further to, to other potential ticket buyers. And from that, that then moved into, so we had, um, you had... Back to the Future, where obviously lots of things went wrong, but lessons were learned. And when the company moved into the Star Wars production, up until that point, they'd mainly be engaging with um, people from the film industry. So film set creators, costume designers, script writers, etc. As it moved into the big Star Wars event, which was held at the abandoned uh, Printworks in Canada Water, they actually engaged with a much larger company to, to assist them in developing um, this kind of huge space. Um, And that was a company called Wonderworks who'd been engaged in the Olympic opening ceremony. So very experienced in doing large events and setting up the infrastructure in spaces where there isn't any. And that's from the very baseline to getting electrics in, getting water supplies in, um, toilets, health and safety, fire exits, all of those things. It's a massive undertaking just to prepare a venue that is, you know, not designed for for entertainment purposes, um, and it was at that point also that um, more theatre practitioners were being engaged. So, lighting designers, uh, stage managers, set designers, those that were used to creating more 360 degree worlds in the way that the film industry hadn't quite been prepared for the fact that people would be, you know, stamping over their sets and opening doors and expecting things to be interactive, and and you know they wouldn't necessarily be because. They they had to be hard-wearing, they had to, you know, last for multiple performances where you'd have thousands of people engaging with them. So that's when it really, really started to shift and really tip towards that engagement with with theatre and with performers. And it went a step further, I think, um, as the productions evolved. There was, I think, there was Moulin Rouge and Blade Runner at the warehouse in Canning Town and later Stranger Things. And there, there were far more in-depth narrative strands for um, audience members to engage with because there were multiple directors at that point being brought in to direct not just the core performance staff, but also to direct all of those people that worked at the front of house, in the bars and in the restaurants. You know, their absolute goal has been to retain everything and to keep it in world is the term that they would use. So everything has to fit into the design of the narrative world. So that goes right into the design of the toilets, the litter bins that people are using, they're all now kind of Crafted and and designed to fit within, you know, the mise-en-scene of the the narrative world. So that has really then led to these kind of new systems of of production and organisation of people and how you flow thousands of people through these different spaces that sometimes move into tunnels, you know, or small confined spaces or small rooms. What does that then mean for performer safety, for audience safety, for kind of the bunching of thousands of people in space How do, you know, the performance has to be really carefully designed and managed to distract audiences, to disperse them, to move them around and to keep everybody safe. So there's been so many interesting lessons learned through the lens of secret cinema, having to engage with these issues head on. Um, And they've really started to engage with organisations like Equity, with, you know, performance unions to really work with and to aid in the assistance of both performer safety of audience consent all of these issues kind of emerging as the format has evolved so yeah it's been a really fascinating kind of Thing to write about and that's all kind of focused within chapter five of the book really goes into detail there about all the different roles and how they're all organized and how you know different sectors are brought together across the theater the film the festival sector through catering and service industries you know it's a huge uh, machine that involves so many different types of, of work and labor and creativity
2: the book sort of wraps up, but I guess is is kind of influenced throughout by the impact of the pandemic and um, I suppose the um, challenge and and kind of reconfiguration of of not just secret cinema, but, um, you know, of of sort of live, um, in-person, immersive experiences much more generally. And and I guess a a nice way of sort of concluding the discussion is is to think about um, where we are now. Um, So maybe I'll come to you First, Helen, in terms of um, what was the the impact of the pandemic um, on secret cinema? Um,
0: well, obviously, the pandemic happened right in the middle of um, one of their um, shows, which was Stranger Things. So, I think the final few of those were actually cancelled. And so you know you could no longer have immersive gatherings of any sort during the lockdown. So they went from yeah having having these events to, to no longer being able to have these events at all. But they very quickly pivoted, in that lovely parlance of the pandemic, into doing other kinds of experience, really rather rapidly, and again influenced others. So, they the first thing that they did were these um, sort of online Zoom parties. First of all, kind of thematized around Stranger Things, kind of carrying forward um, some of the the narratives and thematics of that. That then evolved into these um, secret sofa. Um, events where everyone where they told you the film that you needed to watch, you had to find it yourself and then you all had to sit down and watch it at a certain Period of time, and they did the same sorts of things. So they um, asked people to share images of of food that they made that was thematized around the screening to show their costumes again. So they they continued to maintain a relationship with their audience in order to um, yeah not lose that very that that enormous asset that they'd developed through that um, that loyal following. And then they did things like um, secret cinema drive-ins. Where they not only showed the film, but they also had um, kind of playful events happening around the vehicle. Um, I th- um, forget what it's called, so glove box bingo that um, you could play and things like that. Um, again, with sponsors, so they they were sponsored. They had a relationship with Hagendars darts during a lot of that. So they themselves closed down, and like many arts organisations um, and things sort of grew up around secret cinema drawing on um, some of their ideas but also developing others sort of developing online immersive experiences there's um, um, a couple of really interesting examples that happened around about that time and um, the swamp motel being um, an award-winning example that can combined zoom interaction with sort of online search engine technology in order to create a a very immersive experience so yes so the the pandemic obviously interrupted an awful lot of activity but then you know secret cinema maintained their their audience and along the while, obviously, they were busy in the background, kind of seeking new forms of investment. They got funding from the Arts Council, that caused um, a little bit of um, a ripple of, of kind of protest around that during the the um, those kind of the cultural recovery funding. And obviously, during that time, they were they were refining their model and thinking about where else to go. So they reached out more into other territories. So they Im- improved their relationship with intellectual property in order to move into the US um, with an experience based on a game in LA and that came out just after the pandemic. And, yeah, so they, they continue to evolve their model. And, of course over the, the, the course of the, the years since the lockdown, we've actually seen um, a real burgeoning of immersive experiences, so much so that, um, you know, there are now an awful lot of really high-profile immersive experiences in London, for instance. Um, that we I can come back to that in a second. But also, like um, other organizations um, such as punch drunk they've managed to who are um, a very interestingly similar organization to secret cinema in terms of the extent to which they've developed a very loyal following they've um really been at the vanguard of pushing forward what is an immersive experience in their case these kind of complex highly choreographed immersive worlds based around um you know a single story they punch drunk have now got premises in woolwich arsenal that they're that are more permanent that gives them the opportunity to really continue to experiment with their form and so yeah we've seen a a a real growth in the immersive sector there's an organization called immersive everywhere that's been doing really interesting um experiences that have also not just been successful nationally such as their um um uh, uh, um, oh, gosh, I forget the name of the, the. Um, <laughs> I'm so rubbish at remembering names of things. The Great Gatsby, their Great Gatsby experience is not just in London, but it's also an, a piece of property that's gone international. So the immersive experience economy has actually post the the lockdown been a sector that's really exploded. So, in the the final chapter of the book, we look at the the extent to which secret cinema has shown us those kind of processes of industrialization and we kind of end the book just at just at that that kind of real sense of of, of a flourishing of that economy with um, you know things like War of the Worlds being um, the War of the Worlds experience based around Jeff Wayne's score suddenly becoming a major a hit, driving tourism and boosting the visitor economy post-pandemic, the monopoly experience in London, things like Crystal Maze, developing experiences. And I suppose the final note that suggests that we're really seeing that economy um, kind of stabilise and um, potentially flourish is is the the evidence of internationalization of the 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 format with both secret cinema and punch drunk kind of reaching into china and the us but then also in the uk seeing things like secret cinema take greece to to birmingham and immersive everywhere take um, peaky blinders out of london and also into the midlands so i think those are signs that this is a this is an industry that's now finding its feet, developing a formula of audience engagement and promotion that um, is here to stay. Yeah, I think one of the things you mentioned there, Helen's worth mentioning
1: about Secret Cinema's influence in the, sca- in the space, bringing together gaming, because that's been a huge kind of, obviously there's escape rooms, there's a whole other strand of immersive around gaming, but one of the things they did during the pandemic period was to develop a digital platform where they um, delivered a Ghostbusters experience, which was a live online experience with live performers, but also a gaming element, which then fed into the production that they went on to produce after the pandemic, which there was arcane in the US, which was based on a gaming property, but also Guardians of the Galaxy in the UK, which actually embedded digital engagement into that experience through kind of score a scoring system and the performers having kind of um, digital devices so that teams within the, um, within the Guardians of the Galaxy narrative could compete and there was a scoreboard and it was, yeah, very, very heavily gamified. So that bringing together and that convergence of those forms has really, I think, crystallised as part of the, the impact Of the pandemic, and then one final note that we didn't include in the book because it happened after we'd finished writing it was the the investment that Secret Cinema received from the government through their Future Fund. Um, One of the organisations to receive, I think, four million um, in that fund to support businesses during the COVID pandemic, and of course, what that then led on to is the sale of Secret Cinema. So that was. Back in autumn 2022, um, Secret Cinema were actually bought out by Todaytix, which is a an American ticketing group, for 88 million. So this really does take it into the to the next chapter.
2: I mean that sets up quite obviously, you know, a, a sequel uh, to this book in in terms of what happens next. You know, both telling the story, but I suspect as well, you know, in terms of an analytical point about. Um, you know, what happens when things both go international, but have very different um, sort of business models and, um, you know, maybe sort of different demands in, in terms of um, profit and, and possibly loss. But as well as, you know, kind of more to be said, I, I sort of wonder, um, are you kind of like finished or settled with Secret Cinema? And what are you both going to be working on next um, now that this book is out? Uh, maybe we'll start with uh, with Helen. Um
0: so I guess there's there's a couple of things that sort of don't feel like they're yet finished, which is um, sort of really understanding um, or, I guess, more um, more elaborating on the kinds of research that methods that we need in order to really understand these immersive experiences because I think at the very start what Sarah was saying about the ephemerality of these experiences that does remain a challenge in terms of how you you really understand what are the aesthetics what are the practices going on in these experiences and how do we how do we research them Um, and then there's still the the kind of the development of, of um, greater and more widespread adoption of a kind of conceptual vocabulary around the immersive sector and that's very much something that I'm still interested in and still very much interested in the role of, of play and games in the in the ongoing evolution of the ways in which we are um, spending our experience money if you like, that that more and more of our engagements are playful and rooted in for in- of play. Those remain kind of enduring interests. So I don't think the story is quite completed. And certainly um what I'm, you know, actually more directly engaged in right now is kind of widening access to the creative tools of developing immersive experiences, given its increasing economic and aesthetic importance. So, you know, trying to widen out access to to developing these experiences in order to also widen out the audiences for them, because they have been, you know, they are generally very expensive. Um, And they are tended to be um, produced by a rather narrow group of individuals and then also experienced by those folk who can afford those expensive um, experiences. So I continue to be very interested in advancing that that kind of work.
2: And what about you, Sarah?
0: So, yeah, what was really interesting
1: for me was the process of interviewing all of those creatives who were engaged um, in those productions, which... um, could happen because of the pandemic, because these people were, weren't actually then busy at the time, they could no longer work, but it became a moment of reflection for them to, to plan for the next projects, but also to talk to me about their work. And of course, this is a, a project-based sector, so those that work on the productions are either freelancers or small organisations who are brought in, hired in, to work on the specific productions. They therefore work on multiple other um, projects outside of secret cinema, which then lead into other areas of the immersive experience sector more broadly. So that really opened that up to me, that space and the many different practices and organizations and experiences that have been proliferating. So thinking about the immersive experience sector now more broadly, both Helen and I have been working alongside um, Joanna Bucknell at the University of Birmingham, who has co-founded the Immersive Experience Network, which is a a grassroots level organisation that's been set up by the professionals in these sectors to start to formalise their practices, to develop routes to funding, to collaborate, um, and to think about how this sector will grow. So they're a hugely significant organisation, so you should look them up. Um, But Joanna's been fundamental in driving that forward. So we're thinking thinking about other um, outputs, um, other publications that really kind of, yeah, broaden out this lens um, and think about how the UK has been a real leader in this sector, but what it needs to do to move forwards in really fruitful, productive, and as Helen's highlighted, you know, inclusive and accessible ways.